Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, here to break down the Houston Astros farm system. And to do that, we're joined by J.J. Cooper. J.J. has done the Astros system for CPA for quite a few years now. J.J., the Astros were in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. The fallout from the sign-stealing scandal is still playing out here as we enter spring training and pitchers and catchers continue reporting into camp. Everything that has taken place has obviously left a black mark on the game, but we want to focus on moving forward what this all means for the Astros. We saw general manager Jeff Lunau fired. We saw manager A.J. Hinch fired, both after they were suspended by Commissioner Rob Manfred and then owner Jim Crane fired them. Dusty Baker's now the manager, and more importantly, from a long-term perspective, James Click was brought in from the Rays to be the new Astros general manager. JJ, first of all, what did you think of that hire, and what does that mean moving forward for the Astros and their ability to continue to fill this well of talent and extend this stretch, which has been by any measure the best stretch in franchise history? Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're not trying to gloss over it um, as far as the, the sign stealing and all that. If we're looking long-term, I think the most significant thing that has happened here beyond the cloud that will follow the Astros teams of 2017, 18, and, you know, and all that, the, the long-term significant factor here is, is that this basically led to Jeff Lunau being fired. And that is very significant because Jeff Lunau was the boss who ran this, you know, that he was GM who ran the organization, who ran the club. But more than that, he had a very specific way of doing so. Um, and, and really a lot of that involved kind of doing things very differently. I, I would say there are a lot of ways that they did that and in, in ways that, that worked out for them. Um, to give an example, there were, a, there were a lot of teams who probably at the end of the day figured out a way they would have taken a hit, you know, as far as, the, with the Brady Aiken situation where they had the number one pick and at the end of the day now, and again, there were people who were, who were just screwed by that. Like Jacob Nix who had a deal and, and was basically left standing there because of the Aiken deal. But the reality is, is that for the Astros, they, their exam, their medical reports, they were concerned about Brady Aiken's elbow and they basically viewed it as we'll take the PR hit. We will take any criticism that we're going to receive. We do not think that he is worthy of the, of normal first pick money now. And so we're not going to offer it. And it basically went down the road where the next year they took Alex Bregman and they took Kyle Tucker because they had two of the top five picks in the draft. And that worked out better for them than what it would appear than signing Brady Aiken for uh, for normal number one pick money because Brady Aiken's elbow did blow out right after that and Brady Aiken's never been the same again. And so you look at things like that and that is an example of where the Astros said, we do not care what others think. We do not care what most teams would do. We're going to do what we feel like we should do. There's the in-between stuff. There's the stuff where the reality of it is is that that the Astros have gotten rid of a lot of scouts and they have replaced scouting, you know, in-person scouting, not entirely, but they have replaced a lot of in-person scouting with uh, video analysis and with uh, using uh, data and, and all that. And they would, they would be the team, they were the team that was willing to kind of do that and to face a lot of criticism and, and scorn for that. And that's one of those where 
you can see good and bad, plenty of both on that. But then you have, at the end of the day, you also have the stuff like this, where this was a situation where the Astros did much that they didn't care what others thought. And you, you can't help but kind of have, you, it's hard to fully separate the Brandon Taubman situation from this too. It is a, uh, a kind of a doubling down on, on whatever you're doing and you are not going to be, uh, it's a reason that Jeff Lunau in his public responses since then has, it's not been a particularly, uh, I, I would say, a. Uh, uh, fully apologetic. Response. Well, it's been, it's been the classic white collar crime response. Again, none of this is actually illegal, but it's the classic deny everything. I didn't read the emails. I don't know anything that happened. It was my underlings throw it under the bus. He's a management consultant through and through. He's a McKinsey consultant. That's what he is. And so we've seen that. But the question is, JJ, how much will change under James Click? This is all things that have happened in the past with the players they have on the field, with the infrastructure they have in the front office right now. How much do you expect to change under James Click? So I think that's going to be one of the keys here where the so, Astros peter out in two years or they're able to keep this run going. So uh, I, I think that the thing that what will this will be interesting to see. I think the James Click hire made a lot of sense from the standpoint of they went out of house. So I mean I, they are the culture is going to change in some way. They have a new boss. But at the same time they have a boss who is both I mean the Rays approach is I would describe it as both analytics and scouting heavy. So it's not the same approach as the Astros in, in any way. But at the same time, it is close enough. It's not going to be, and again, in, in 2020, every team is analytically inclined. But it's not going to be something where it's trying to turn a boat 180 degrees. It's not something where they're going to, at the end of the season, change everything, each, everything that is involved with the Astros front office. I would not envision that. But what it does mean is, and this is where, this is what James Click's year is going to be. I would absolutely say that the next year is a whole lot of Astros uh, front office, you know, minor league in co coaching, employees at all levels, essentially having to kind of establish themselves and show their new boss why they fit in the Astros going forward. And that could be lead to a lot of potential upheaval because we see it over and over. When a new boss comes in, they're going to bring in some of their people long-term. And the timing of this means they're not doing it short-term, but long-term they do. And I think the other thing it means is, is that Often with that, it also means that there is a change in some way of direction. Now, he's inheriting a team that is very successful now, but at the same time, as you said, there is a young, absolute, there's a young core here. There's also a lot of uh, interesting decisions that are going to have to be made in 2021, 2022, and 2023, because this is also a team with an aging pitching staff and has, and it, and has spent understandably it's prospect capital in many ways to try to extend this window well that farm system is not as deep as it has been jj you kind of hit on there the pitching staff to me that's one of the big keys of what i want to get in with you on in terms of the contract status the astros are scheduled to lose george springer michael brantley and josh reddick to free agency after the 2020 season 
We've seen some of their young outfielders come up. Jordan Alvarez, obviously DH last year, but turned in a Willie McCovey 2.0 type of season. Kyle Tucker was much better his second time through the majors as well. So you can see potential pieces for them to replace some of what they lose in the outfield. The pitching staff, however, is going to be key. Justin Verlander and Zach Granke are both signed for two more years. They're free agents after 2021. They lost Garrett Cole. Dallas Keuchel's long gone. Lance McCullers, we have to see if he comes back from his Tommy John surgery the same. And even he is a free agent after 2021 as well. So with that, the top two prospects in this system, Forrest Whitley and Jose Urquidy, it seems like their development is going to be so beyond critical for the Astros to maintain this run of excellence. And I want to start with Whitley. At this time last year, he was the consensus number one pitching prospect in baseball. Everything took a big step back last year, struggled at every level he pitched, uh, was shut down with a shoulder injury at one point. We've heard unofficially that it was more of a mental reset than any actual injury because things were just going so poorly. First of all, JJ, what happened to Forrest Whitley and how can he get back to what he was before? That's the million dollar question um, or the 10 million or the hundred million dollar question, because I think that we have to say that where we sit right now is spring training gets rolling. Forrest Whitley is further from making an impact in that Astros rotation than he was a year ago. Uh, at this time last year, it, it would seem kind of, it would have seemed that surprising, if not shocking, that Forrest Whitley would not pitch for the Astros in the big leagues in 2019. And the reality of it is, is that if you watched his season, yes, you, 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 you detailed many of the, 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 the issues with it, but Let's just be honest about it. There were times last year where Forrest Whitley did not was was struggling to survive on the mound. He was giving up mammoth long home runs in the minors. And the reality of it is, is that his stuff at times last year it got back in the AFL, but his stuff was not as good. His command and control was not as good. And when he got hit, he uh, struggled to handle it as well. I mean, he, he struggled to handle. I should say. His composure on the mound at times, basically, if, if the old adage is, is you don't want to let the hitter see that you're getting to him, he let the hitter see that they, they were getting to him. And, and so, you know, he's already showed up this year heavier. Um, I don't, to be honest, know if, if that's all a good thing, because there were some scouts last year who watching him thought that he wasn't as flexible as he'd been in the past. Um, but he, you know, it, it seems intentional. It, it seems like something that he believes will help him stay stronger through the season. Let's pull this back bigger picture. And Jose Arquiti is the example if the Astros are, are hoping to kind of rely on here. But the Astros pitching development over the last four or five years has done an exceptional job of adding velocity. It, they do an outstanding job of this. The number of players who one year seem pedestrian and the next year are throwing uh, elite level fastballs, it, it's a pretty remarkable number. They have shown that. They have shown, I would say, at least over the course of those four or five years, that, that they can develop breaking balls to where they are very, you know, that they grade out very well as the scouts, you know, watching them in the minors. What they have struggled to do is develop starting pitchers who have success at the major league level on a consistent basis. It's, you have to go back a little ways. I mean, McCullers is the, is the, the example right now. And, and as you just noted, you know, we're kind of seeing if McCullers can uh, hopefully uh, can make a full return from, from Tommy John. But the list of pitchers who have 
look to be very promising and who have, have sometimes been great trade pit chips, but have backed up is a long one. And Francis Martez and David Paulino and, you know, Franklin Perez and Jorge Alcala. It, there's a lot of perception in the industry out there now that there's skepticism towards Astros pitchers because they are viewed as in the lower levels of the minors being really kind of molded more for to be interesting trade chips than they are to be successful big league pitchers. And that's a perception that the Astros are facing. Whitley last year went three and seven with a 7.99 ERA, 44 walks and 59 and two thirds innings. He's still only 22 years old, 2016 first rounder. A lot of things can change in a year. Just as things went from really good to really bad in one year, you hope it can go back the other way in this year. Let me ask you something with that real quick. You saw him in the AFL. Yes. You know, seeing him in the AFL, that was the best he probably looked all year. What, what did you think during your look in the AFL at Forrest Whitley last year compared to uh, two years ago? So the biggest that stood out to me was when I saw him two years ago, I saw him completely fall apart on the mound as soon as his defense made some mistakes behind him and being unable to get out of a bad inning. And that was a red flag for me. It was something I kept in the back of my mind that he does not stay composed very well. This year, I went back out there at the end of the year, and I actually thought he made a lot of strides. There were two fly balls, one to left field, one to right field. C.J. Chatham, who's really an infielder, was playing left field. Jaron Duran, who is a second baseman converting to outfield, was playing right field. Each of them missed a ball that they should have caught, extended the inning, and Whitley did a much, much, much better job year over year staying composed. I thought that was really, really important. That was very, very key for me to see. The thing with Forrest Whitley that I've seen two years in a row now that concerns me, and this is kind of a broader development thing, so many times I feel like evaluators grade a curveball as just how tight the spin is, how much it moves, and those are important. But you also have to land it for a strike. And two years in a row now with Forrest Whitley, his curveball has been a ball out of the hand when I've seen him. So you have hitters just spitting on the curveball. It's really not a threatening pitch at all. And then the fastball stays up in the zone. And I think it's one thing that I've talked with some evaluators about, and I know you and I have talked about it. Part of the Astros, it seems like they try and fit everyone into this box of fastball up, curveball down. Well, when you're a six foot seven, six foot eight pitcher, fastball up isn't good. His fastball stays flat at the top of the zone. This is a guy who should be pounding fastballs downhill with sink, taking advantage of the plane and angle that he can naturally generate. And it seems like what you have now is a guy who's throwing flat fastballs up in the zone that are getting crushed and curveballs that he can't land in the strike zone that are going to be spit on out of the hand. That's why for me, I'd say, you know what, let's see if we can get him to be that sinker cutter type, something that he can just consistently throw for strikes, take advantage of his long limbs, similar to what we've seen the Dodgers do with Dustin May. To me, that's what Forrest Whitley needs to be, and it feels like the Astros are trying to force him into this box that doesn't fit him. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I do think, I, to me, a mixture of, of sinkers down and fastballs up. I, I do think that, that we are in a, in a world right now where there are a lot of hitters who are begging and, 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 and hoping for a, uh, for a sinker down in the zone um, that's, that's right in their sweet spot in a lot of cases. That said, I, you know, there's <laughs> – that said, I, Forrest Whitley knows, the Astros know, he has to be better in, in 2020 than he was in 2019. Um, and, and again, I, I do think the, the thing I took that was very encouraging from the Fall League was the composure was light years better than it was in the Fall League two years ago. We have to see how that continues. But I will say, given everything that we've talked about, the need for you know some arsenal adjustments, you mentioned his command and control coming back. 
Do you expect him to rise to Houston this year? And if he does, what kind of role can he play for the Astros, especially after losing Garrett Cole and Wade Miley in free agency? They're going to need some arms. If he doesn't start games in Houston this year at some point, that's a really bad sign. And I say that because the reality is, is that if, when we were talking at this time last year, when we said, okay, we felt like that the Astros needed one of their young pitchers to step forward. Um, and the top candidates to do so were Forrest Whitley and Corbin Martin and J.B. Bukaskis, one of those three. That was their top pitching prospect, top pitching prospect in the game. And then two recent college, you know, high draft picks who had were close enough to the big leagues to where you thought, okay, they, they could be, they could fit into this, uh, you know, rotation at some point in 2019. Well, Martin and Bukaskis aren't part of the organization anymore. To Jose Arquiti's credit, he stepped up, he filled that role. He was the guy who who filled that need for them and pitched excellent, including you know, in the postseason. So credit to him there are not as many when we are talking about them right now every team pretty much usually needs guys to step up at some point from the minors at some point in the year this astros staff does not have as many candidates in the minors right now they still have others but they do not have as many as they had at this time last year and forrest whitley is the obvious guy i mean he is the guy who if it goes right, he should be the player, the pitcher, who at some point this year steps into the rotation and helps out. And if he doesn't, uh, that yes, he is still young. And yes, there is this magical thing that I don't know what it is, that even successful high school pitchers a lot of times take seven years to, to figure it out from draft to uh, big league success. But it, it, it would be a, a concerning – it would be very concerning if Forrest Whitley looked to be big league ready coming into 2019 and we leave 2020 and a healthy Forrest Whitley is still, no, still not a uh, big league pitcher. That, that to me, they need him. Yeah, okay, in the postseason maybe it's throwing gas and being a reliever. But because they have all these, you know, front of the rotation kind of guys, these veterans. But – but and especially if McCullers comes back, but they need him at some point to start games for them this year. You mentioned Jose Arquiti coming up and really leapfrogging a lot of those other pitching prospects who are ranked ahead of him. Arquiti missed all of 2017 after having Tommy John surgery. 2018 finished the year at high class A Bowie's Creek. Going into last year, he had never pitched above A ball. Really exploded in a lot of ways. Got some attention early. Pitched very well, especially in AAA Round Rock. That was really eye-opening just given the context of that league, everything that was going on there. Made his way up to Houston and was excellent, especially in the postseason. Won game four with a really gutsy effort. Showed some pretty good stuff, too. How much faith is there that Jose Urquidy's 2019 represented a true breakout versus maybe a fluke and he takes a step back? Talk about a name coming out of nowhere. Uh, you know, it's partly because he was, we knew him as Jose Luis Hernandez before that. But, uh, you know, he was ranked in our top 30 before that, but we didn't have him ranked as Jose Arquiti because he changed his name uh, last year. I, I think that there's a lot of there there. I don't think that this is a fluke where you're going to watch him kind of fade away and disappear. I, I don't think he's necessarily going to be as good as he was in the postseason because he was exceptional in the postseason. Really, you could argue he was 
you know, in the World Series, he was one of the best starters the, uh, the Astros had. Um, but I do think that he is a solid number four for them. And I think he's earned that job, you know, and unless he does turn back into a pumpkin, I, I think that that is, uh, that's his role um, on this team. And I think that they kind of need him to really kind of take that. But I, I think that he throws enough strikes with enough stuff that, that really, to me, I'm less worried about him, you know, filling that role than I am about what Forrest Whitley, you know, what role for Forrest Whitley is going to fill at some point this year, just because he, he did it for a pretty extended stretch yesterday, you know, last year, sorry, not yesterday, last year. And so I think that there's a lot there to say, okay, just keep doing what you were doing. Yes. Hitters are going to adjust a little bit. You're going to have to adjust, but the command, the control is good enough for him to do that. Forrest Whitley and Jose Arquiti were pretty straightforward. The numbers one and two prospects in this organization, Whitley number one, in part because of lack of better options, both Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker graduating last year. After these two, it seemed like you could have gone a lot of different ways. Take us through that process and ultimately how many guys were in the mix for this three, four spot and how it kind of all got sorted out. Yeah, uh, I I do think that there's probably a, a three through six to me on this is, is at a different level. And I think then once you get to seven, you could go a lot of different ways from seven to like 12, 14, 15, maybe on this list. Uh, if you got the handbook, um, I, there is not a clear number three prospect uh, in this system. And there's not, there are only two guys that we're talking about who, you know, Whitley made our top hundred or did not at the same time. And, you know, he didn't miss by a whole lot. And I, he's right in that mix after him. There's no one who's right in that mix right now. Now I am, and I was the one kind of helping this kind of, you know, it's a group effort, but I was the one lining up the Astros. I am a Jeremy Pena believer. I think that, I think that he's a guy who may be a little bit underappreciated right now, largely because uh, understandably, if you saw him in a college and you saw him now, you would not think that you were talking about the same player because the Jeremy Pena, who is, who is now in spring training with the Astros, the Jeremy Pena, who we saw last year is just such a much bigger, more physical player than the one we saw in college. He really has, you talk about guys kind of growing into their bodies. He's gone beyond that. He's really kind of embraced getting stronger and, and what that means to his game. And he's always been really good defensively at shortstop. That's never been the question. The question was how much is he going to hit? And last year we saw that he not only hit, but he's there, there's some power potential developing there. And, and to me, that's why he ended up being number three on this list was, I, if I have an up the middle guy who, who really has a chance to be, uh, you know, a potential regular up the middle with some offensive impact, there's still some questions about that, but the chance for some offensive impact, then, then that's where I went for number three. Yeah, Pena is the son of a longtime big leaguer, Geronimo Pena is a third rounder out of Maine, which uh, I think some people might be surprised to learn even has a baseball program. And he uh, definitely had a solid first season, got up to high class A Fayetteville. It'll be interesting to see what he's able to do here in year two or second full season, I should say. 
Further down this list, I want to talk about Corey Lee. He was the Astros' first-round pick out of Cal this year. Surprised a lot of people. We'd gotten some whispers leading up to the draft that he was rising. At the same time, no one saw him – I shouldn't say no one. Very few saw him as a first-round caliber talent, maybe third round at the highest. What did the Astros see in him that led them to believe, no, this guy does belong in the first round? Remember when we started this podcast with the whole idea that, you know, that they are not – the Jeff Lunau regime was not about let's follow conventional wisdom in any way. Well, I, I don't want to overdo it on this, but, but Corey Lee fits that. They like the attributes. They think that he is a, a slugging catcher who has the chance to hit for power and play solid defense behind the plate and put that all together. And they see him as a, as basically the top guy on the board at that, at, at when they picked. Now that is not a consensus opinion in any stretch, as you just said, like he had some late helium in the draft and, and he was a guy, you know, I mean, you did our SoCal draft list last year. He was a guy who, if we said, who is a guy in our, I think we had him in the 100 range on our, you know, BA 500, who, who could go higher than that in the draft? I, I think Lee would have been a guy that you would have, yeah, I think, in fact, you did single him out. And, you know, in the week, weekend before the draft, like this is a guy who could go higher than that. We didn't see first round. We didn't expect first round. Um, I, I will say with that, the reality of it is, is that, it does fit in a lot of ways with kind of a, uh, what the Astros have, have drafted position player wise in recent years. And they've had some hits on that. I think, you know, Abraham Ham Toro's, you know, who's on this top 10 is a, you know, is an interesting guy who they were probably a little higher on than many. And, you know, they believed in the bat and it's, it's paid off. They've also had other guys where kind of their belief in bats and kind of less worries about defensive uh, positioning, you know, defensive ability, has not paid off so far. J.J. Matajevic is an example. We'll see. They traded Seth Beer. We'll still see. I mean, Seth Beer could hit. There was never really much of a question on that. The question is, is where Seth Beer going to play? And now that's something that Arizona is going to have to figure out since they traded Seth Beer in, in that deal. I, I, I see, Lee, this is going to be a very interesting year to me for Corey Lee because he was a very productive hitter last year at Cal where he was with Andrew Vaughn. He does hit the ball really hard. He, he's working on reworking his swing to get it to you know, hit that ball in the air more, you know, more regularly. Uh, strong arm, but he's got work to do as far as framing, receiving behind the plate. There is a lot of, you know, there's a pretty significant to-do list. At, you know, at the same time, he's going to have every opportunity because, again, this is the farm system that, that needs guys like him to really step up. And it's important to note, he did perform well as a catcher in a major conference, really did a good job protecting Andrew Vaughn in that Cal lineup. And be interesting to see, because I do think there is something to be said for guys who have performed, especially if they play a premium position. It seems like the Astros have faith that Corey Lee can hit, and if you can hit, they'll find a spot for you. No, that's, that, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, uh, again, it, it is something that he is one of those – he is a player who we will know a lot more at the end of this year than, than we will, than we know right now. Um, you know, and that sounds like a cop out in some ways, but it is something where uh, I, I do think we will know at the end of this year more of, did the Astros know something that everyone else didn't know, or was the industry as a whole more accurate in, in their assessment of Corey Lee? 
JJ, before we wrap up here, the most interesting guy on this list to me is Christian Javier. He's a 22-year-old right-hander. He'll be 23 here in a couple of weeks. Struck out 170 batters last year, was sixth in the minor leagues, had a 174 ERA. That includes stops at AA and AAA, bounded all the way up, started the year at high class A Fayetteville, made it up to AAA, was by any measure one of the most successful pitchers in the minor leagues last year. Scouts have some questions about the pure stuff, but he's never not performed, even the years before this, 2018, 270 ERA, 2017, 225, 2016, 229. Everywhere he's gone, he's performed. What is the assessment of Christian Javier and the likelihood of success that everything plays in the majors? Because the track record is as good as, it's probably better than, frankly, anyone else on this list. Oh, it is. It's better than anyone on most teams' top 10. um, I I have to say I'm clearly skeptical. And I say that because based purely on the results, he would not rank at the back of this top 10. He would rank number one. Uh, On results, on success – Okay, maybe you could put Arkady out of him because he's done it in the big leagues, but he had a way better 2019 than Forrest Whitley did. He had a better 2019 than Jeremy Pena did. You can keep on going down the list. That said, it is an unusual approach. There are guys who succeed with this approach. The guys who succeed long-term with this approach, though, are – I would say for every guy who does, there are two or three who do not. And the reason I say that, when I say this approach, he nibbles to some extent because he needs to. Uh, there's not a, a true plus pitch, I think, you know, really to me, you know, uh, in the assortment. It's the ability to mix. It's the ability that fastball does absolutely play better than velocity would indicate. Um, there are, you know, there, again, there's four pitches, but, I do, I hesitate to say this is a guy who's destined for long-term big league success because I, uh, I first I will, I will own up to the fact that I am a, a low velo skeptic and, and I don't want to make Javier out to like, he's not throwing 86 up there consistently. I mean, he'll, he's low nineties. He'll be 88 to 93, 94 at his best, but it's mainly kind of that, that low, low nineties. Nowadays, that kind of fastball, it's really hard, uh, you know, to make that work in the big leagues without, usually without exceptional command and control. And and I don't know if if Javier has that, but it has worked for him everywhere through the minors. He absolutely, I I think, has to fit into the mix of of players. uh, You know, he's on the 40-man already. So, like, if they need a spot start, right now he's closer to being able to help do that than Forrest Whitley is. And so he does fit in that mix. I kind of think of him as more of a, a back-end guy, um, you know, and maybe kind of an up-and-down guy. And he is absolutely a guy who could utterly prove me wrong, prove many of us wrong. But, I, I, again, I do remain skeptical at this point. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the fastball playing up. We do see sometimes guys who throw 97, their fastball does not play well. And he does have an above average slider, which should help him. I think he'll be interesting to see. Maybe he can take the velo type of jump you've talked about. We saw Jose Urquidy, for example, do that last year at an older age than Christian Javier is. And I'll be curious to see what he's able to do in Houston. JJ, a pair of 2019 draft picks rounded out the uh, top 10 here. How many guys were in the mix for the back of this 10? Because it feels like the top eight probably had spots in here pretty safely. 
but I know it was not easy to fill out the top 10 in what has become a very shallow system, albeit for the right reasons. Mm, a lot though. I mean, this is, this is a farm system that we ranked, you know, we just came out for our talent rankings and it ranks in the, in significantly in the bottom third. And, and, and kind of what I would say with that is, is that you get to the thing that does absolutely stand out to me uh, of this group is if you want to argue for five, six or seven other right-handers who generally throw hard, who generally uh, have a breaking ball, who face some reliever can, you know, questions about whether they're reliever long-term feel free because I, I, struggled and worked hard on trying to figure out, okay, Brandon Belak or is Luis Garcia or does Tyler Ivy or, you know, there are a lot of these guys. And that is the thing. When I talk about that, this is not as deep a, a Astros farm system. One thing I should make clear, there are still a ton of right-handers in this system who have a chance to pitch in the big leagues because they have a, ever-growing number of hard-throwing righties with some control issues who in many cases can snap off a breaking ball. Now, very few of them are slam dunk starters. A lot of them are guys who, you know, okay, the velo may be not enough by itself to carry them to the big leagues. We had a couple of these guys who were available in the Rule 5 draft who had time in double-A and everyone passed on them, so that tells you at least a little something. But there are a ton of those guys. What this system to me does not have a whole lot of right now is you get outside of the top 10 and you say, okay, who are the position players? And there are not many. Um, this is a pitching heavy farm system right now. When I, I think that their pitching development has done a really good job, especially if they do a really good job signing players internationally and helping them get better uh, pitchers you know, on the international market, helping them get better. When you look at this farm system right now, the good news is, is they have a, you, you, as we just said, the pitching is the question long-term more than the lineup is at the big league level. That's good news for the Astros because there are not a whole lot of guys to me outside this top 10 who fit into as guys who, who could be, uh, you know, regulars in 2022, 23, or 24 in the lineup. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the, the lineup and the lack of options there. I, I think we need to reinforce again, it's for the right reasons. This decade alone, they graduated Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, George Springer, Carlos Correa. They used a lot of other guys in trades. We saw them trade Seth Beer last year to go get Zach Granke. It's exactly what you're supposed to do. As a result, they've had a lot of success. Now, this is where it gets interesting to me because you mentioned they need position players. We're going to start seeing some of these guys hit free agency. I mentioned Brantley and Springer and Reddick were all free agents after this year. Bregman and Altuve are locked up long-term, but Yuli Gurriel's getting older. He's going to be 37 next year. The Astros lost their first-round picks for the next two years and their second-round picks for the next two years as part of the punishment. How bad is it going to get in terms of the farm system and lack of talent coming up the pipeline over the next few years, given they've emptied it all out, they don't have any picks to replace it, and while they do have some young guys who made it up, again, Jordan Alvarez is still young, Kyle Tucker is still young, even a guy like Miles Straw is going to help the team in some form or fashion, it feels like it could get worse before it gets better. Oh, I mean... Okay, you, you've got another factor with which is is that let's say that you get to July this year, and this 
club needs help in 2020. I don't see any reason that you would say, no, 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 we can't trade away prospects. We need to hold on to them for the future because this, I, I mean, this to me is a team with a window and the window is closing. And when you just laid what you just laid out, when you look at the punishment that is coming, Oh, and on top of that, let's also throw in the fact that if you are a player on this Astros team, the 2020 season is probably more important to you than any, any other season you'll ever play in your life. Because with the scrutiny on them, if this Astros team in 2020 can succeed, especially if somehow they won the World Series, it does not erase the cheating that went on in 2017. But it does offer them in some way a response that they can offer, which is, is you know what? Without cheating, with everyone focused on making sure that we did it right, we still won it. It's very important for these players and this you know, regime to succeed in 2020. So I think that at some point the reckoning is coming. You, you, know, you, you made the point of, of all those players, and it is a long list of players who are going to be free agents after the 2021 season. On top of that, we are also talking about a situation where that Grinke plus Justin Verlander is close to 70 mil for, uh, for 2021, you know, 68 million to be exact. Yeah. 68 million for those two. You're going to have Carlos Correa, his final year of arbitration. You're going to have Lance McCuller in his colors junior in his final year of arbitration. You, you are going to have a lot of expensive players. So my point is, is that unless Jim Crane is happy with, bumping the payroll to a very, you know, significant number. This is a team that is going to have a harder and harder time filling the holes on the market as well. And these draft penalties, they can spin internationally. We've already linked them, you know, significantly, you know, to a significant uh, Cuban prospect for the 2020 uh, July 2 signing period. But, and they've done a really good job internationally. I think they probably continue with, they will. Although a lot of the people who are doing that are, are not the same people who are doing such a great job. You know, they're, they're, a lot of those people are gone now. But on top of that, the draft penalties that they face make it, are going to make it very hard for them to get significant talent out of the draft over two drafts in a row. That is a level of draft penalty that I cannot, you know, there are teams who have self-imposed that on themselves with free agency. But other than that, I cannot remember another team facing this. And the reality is, is when teams used to do this to themselves in free agency, where they would give up multiple picks because of uh, signing free agents, that was usually done before 2012. That was usually done before the time where you had a strict limit on how much you could spend based on your draft picks. You know, the reality of it is, is if you didn't have a first round pick in 2009 or 2010, but you were willing to spend first round money, you find a first round talent later on and, and pay them. That, that was something you could do. You can't do it now. It's not allowed. It's that loophole has been closed or call it a loophole, call it whatever you want. And so I find it very hard to see how the Astros are going to get significant talent out of the draft for a two-year span. And no team can basically not take a hit from that. And that's coming. Given all those reasons, for me, it makes sense for the Astros to go all in on 2020, all in on 2021, knowing that things are going to get a little ugly starting in 2022, no matter what you do, even if you just stay the course. So you might as well go all in on these two seasons, 
trade some of these prospects as things come up. You know, we have to see what they need and who maybe blossoms, who takes a step back. But it does feel like to me, the Astros, again, there's obviously a black cloud over everything they've accomplished. But this is the most successful stretch in franchise history. It feels like they have two more years to get the most out of it they can. And for that, given the lack of farm system talent remaining in the system still, given the draft pick penalties, it does feel like it's going to be ugly 2022 and beyond no matter what you do. So you might as well try and make 2020 and 2021 make the most of it you can. I, I think that that, again, that's the window. To me, if this Astros team is successful in 2022, I'll be uh, – that would be uh, – again, that, that would be pretty amazing, to be honest, because, yes, they will have Altuve still, although Altuve at that point will be hitting, hitting the, 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 the point of careers where most players start to really tail off. They will have Alex Bregman. But there are a lot of stars on this team who, if they're going to be on that 2022 team, it's because they've been re-signed. And they can do that some, but it's hard to do that with everybody. And, you know, uh, again, the, the draft penalties that they are going to face are going to be significant. I, I do not see any other scenario. We, we look at the Diamondbacks right now, and the Diamondbacks just came off a draft where they had seven prominent picks. And you look at how much that helped their farm system. Now, again, they may not all pan out but it also gave them the prospect depth where they could go out and make a trade for a Starling Marte and really kind of shrug off the prospect depth, you know, that they lost there because they have plenty of other talent that they brought in last year. The Astros are going to face the uh, flip side of that, which is, you know, we look at how they got Zach Greinke. Well, they got Zach Greinke because they had spent draft picks on Seth Beer, Corbin Martin, and J.B. Bukoskis. None of those players they would have had under these draft penalties. Those are prominent picks that would have been taken away. And so if you're not having those picks, you're not able to use those kind of prospects and trades either. So, you know, they, you're, Jeremy Pena is a third rounder. You know, if they can keep developing the Jeremy Pena's and the Abraham Toros of the world, well, that's how they're going to have to do it. But the reality of it is, is not having first round picks is it, it's going to be costly. We'll see what the Astros are able to do in the 2020 season. Obviously, they will be the number one most watched team this year on a number of levels. Everything that takes place in the major leagues, what happens with Forrest Whitley's development, if they have any prospects spring forward, they can maybe use in a trade, how competitive this team is. Uh, there's going to be so many layers to watch, so many levels of interest, and uh, we'll see how they're able to handle it. JJ, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insight as always. Sounds good. Thanks, Kyle. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitch, or whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Also, now is a great time to subscribe. The college preview is out just in time for the start of the college baseball season. You won't want to miss it. Our Major League preview is coming out next month. Everything you'll want to know about the upcoming Major League season, including staff picks for World Series winners, Cy Young Award, every award in the book. And uh, it's, it's a good time to be a subscriber right as baseball season's gearing up. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.